This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Season 16 of Seeking Human Victims, The Devil Made Me Do It wraps up. But this devil, you will be in your corner for many future seasons to come. Tonight, we look at a film, a modern classic, if you will, that capitalizes a little bit on the buzz right now of one of the most prominent horror directors of 2022. And coming up in 2023 has some big things on the horizon. I'm talking about Ty West as we look at his ode to 80s horror and the satanic panic era in House. I'm sorry, the House of the Devil from 2009. This one barely missed making the cut way back on our decade of death season that covered the best horror films from 2010 to 2020. And so this would have been like front and center had it just been a year later. Uh, This is the movie that kind of turned me uh, on to Ty West's work. And I've kind of followed him since then. And uh, so we're going to talk a whole lot more about that. But at this time, I would, of course, like to introduce my own satanic cult dreamboat andy i like mine with butter (laughs) and returning to the show the jackal of carlsberg himself big daddy grizz jason griswold it's gonna work in spite of you you little bitch and rounding out the crew, the one the only the great mooji just listen He's given the sign. He's chosen you. Creepy ass fucking Tom Noonan. Really being a grade A mega creep in this movie. As he's done he's in all the time yeah, But here he's like all time levels of creep. And I have seen this movie several times. Uh, it, when it came out, just it was one of those that the title and the, uh, just kind of the imagery posters that you saw enticed me and so i sought it out as as soon as i could i think we rented this i think we saw this together for the first time muji um you can correct me on that if i'm wrong but uh we we watched it when we were watching some movies for our old podcast the midnight black mass way back in the day we used to do a segment on there called the muji movie minute 
And so we mainly watched old movies recommended to us by people, but, you know, this one was like a new movie that looked like an old movie. So that was what drew us to it, and that was the first time that I saw it. Yeah, this was a, um, like, this is a movie that I'd heard a little bit about on the old internet, and it was a just off-the-shelf buy at Walmart. So I'm pretty sure that's how we saw it together. I still own that DVD. I still have it in the old, in the old Muji gallery, so pretty positive that was the first time that either one of us saw it was when i I bought it from walmart and we we watched it many a time yeah i saw this a few years ago i want to say slightly pre-pandemic caught it on shutter but really dug it first time as is customary as is tradition but to break from tradition for a moment we are uh we're running a gag now where we're allowing each member of the panel to do the ad read so this week uh we of course kick it over to our pals at horror pain gore death productions who have brought us yet another musical guest and dreamboat annie is gonna tell you more horror pain gore death recording artists save your skin return with more rotting misery and victim mori demonstrates what is possible when human agony and and ingenuity manipulate machinery in the in the darkness save your skin have always used machine elements to obscure the humanity of the musicians but it is easy to picture bloody phlegm on the microphone while listening to brooding opener iconoclast and even easier to imagine razor blades and shattered wine bottles during the meditative martyrdom. Closing out the nine-song ordeal that is Invecta Mori is the appearance of legendary vocalist Mark Grew on the album's most vicious track, Sycophant. Invicta Mori is pitiless and unrelenting, but utterly hum- human at the same time, perhaps more than ever before. Save Your Skin listeners craving even more pain would do well to seek out the CD edition of Invecta Mori, which exclusively features the four-song Doomfather EP as an offering to those who still value physical media. Here's Burning Eden by Save Your Skin. And it's kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims.
signs. Uh, so what's this movie about? It's about a young college student who's hired as a babysitter at an isolated house and is then caught up in a bizarre and dangerous series of events as she fights for her life. 
It combines elements of slasher films and the haunted house subgenre and uses the 1980s satanic panic theme as a central plot element. And it pays homage to hard films of the 70s and 80s, recreating the style of films of that era using filming techniques and similar technology to what was used then. The film's opening text claims it's based on a true story. Of course, there's a technique used in films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Amityville Horror, and so forth. Uh, very doubtful that there is any actual truth to that. So, House of the Devil is directed by Ty West. He is a native of Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, he was actually featured in a 2001 fall issue of Teen People magazine. And he attended the School of the Visual Arts and became a director in the early 2000s. He kicked it off with a short in 2001 called The Wicked and a couple features, one called The Roost in 2005, another called Trigger Man in 2007. And his breakout film is the movie we're talking about tonight, The House of the Devil from 2009. Uh, he also released The Innkeepers in 2011 and The Sacrament in 2013. The Innkeepers is a take on a, a haunted hotel genre, which certainly is a subgenre of horror. And then The Sacrament was basically his own take on, like, what if Jonestown was being filmed by a found footage documentary crew. Uh, he also had a couple acting cameos. He's in Your Next. That's the guy who gets shot in the head with the fucking arrow. Um, that always pops me. Uh, then in 2009, he wrote, produced, and directed a web series called Dead and Lonely for IFC Films. And then he was involved in the 2009 movie Cabin Fever 2 Spring Fever, but he disavowed it. <laughs> After uh, he cited there was massive interference and re-editing involved in that. I know like Adam Green was attached to that project at one time too, wasn't he? Like there was a lot of controversy around the, the Cabin Fever 2 director stuff. But ultimately, uh, yeah, Ty West had his name removed from it. It's um, always actually, tough when the director's like, I just, I just don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, it's rough, and I'm sorry I misspoke. He actually tried to remove his name completely and do the uh, the old Alan Smithy. If you ever see Alan Smithy as the director on a movie, then you know somebody fucked up because the director did not want his name associated with that, thinking it was some kind of piece of shit. Or maybe there was like a creative fallout or another reason they didn't want to be associated with it. But yeah, he tried to get the Alan Smithy credit, so I apologize. He was denied that, so he, he did have to own it, even though he disavows it. <laughs> and then he was set to direct The Haunting of Georgia, which is a sequel to the popular Haunting in Connecticut film. But he left that project in March of 2010. And then in 2012, he worked on the VHS anthology with a number of his director peers, he directed the second segment in that called Second Honeymoon. And then in uh, June of 2015, he directed an episode of the MTV Scream television series, which was the penultimate episode of the first season called The Dance. He also directed an episode of the Eli Roth and Jason Blum we TV horror series, South of Hell. And he wrote, directed, and produced and edited 
the Western film In the Valley of Violence, starring Ethan Hawke, Tessa Farmiga, and uh, John Travolta. And that appeared at South by Southwest in March of 2016. So this gets us to the Thai West, you know, of today. In late 2020, it was announced that A24 Pictures was going to produce a horror film called X. And it would be directed by West. And it would star Mia Goth, Scott Muscuti, Jenna Ortega, and Brittany Snow. And it did get released on March 18th of 2022 to great critical acclaim. And uh, it was actually part of the COVID shutdown uh, filming victims. It, it, uh, it was in production filming in New Zealand, and the production was tempor- temporarily halted due to the pandemic, but they were able to get it back on track. While it was halted, Wes spent that time writing the screenplay to the prequel, which ended up becoming the film Pearl. And that was filmed back-to-back with X once production started up again. And Pearl was then released in September of 2022 to great critical acclaim. One of the best horror films of the year, uh, right up there with X. So, but it's rare, like an almost incredible feat that a horror director would have two films in the same year that were widely considered the two best films of the year. And then, uh, of course, now he's working on the third installment in that series coming out here in just a few months. Uh, Maxine the sequel to X. So it will complete the trilogy. So fucking yeah. Ty West really setting the world on fire right now. Yeah, man. Very, very happy that he's had this like kind of Renaissance because he was, uh, you know, kind of gone. I mean, he was doing like a lot of TV. I actually heard him on a podcast. I think it was on the Mick Garris podcast where he was, you know, actually like happy, like said, learned a lot doing all the TV and stuff like that. But, you know, there was just a really big gap there in between horror movies for him there for a while which you know do what you want hope you know whatever type of movies he wants to make he gets to make but it's awesome to have him back because after this movie came out like i think everybody kind of thought like you know he was going to be one of the dudes and you know his next couple of movies did fine like i liked them a lot but like they didn't you know really set the world on fire and so it seemed like he might kind of disappear a little bit. Like a lot of the, um, the directors of that era have like a lot of the horror directors, um, you know, the, I think they called them the splat pack in the, in the late two thousands there. A lot of those guys, you know, have either gone away or not making horror movies at all anymore. So awesome that he's had, you know, such a triumphant return to the genre. Hell yeah. Well, let's talk more about the house of the devil. So Ty West really known for being able to recreate a period piece. I mean, that's what X was, you know, it was a recreation that was like, that takes place in the seventies. They shot it on film from the seventies. I mean, it looks, it feels, it smells like a seventies movie. And then Pearl is a movie taking place, I think, in the 30s, maybe the 40s, but it's it's in that era, and it is shot, and it is edited, and it is scored, and every piece of it is done like a film of that era. So it's really wild, to other than, you know, it's, it's color, but, um, but it's really wild to see that, and um, he does that here with House of the Devil. It's, it's He's recreating the 80s film. This is you know, arguably the first time that he does this. He shot it on 16 millimeter because he wanted it to have that look. And of course, lots of culture aspects of the 80s are on display. The feathered hair, 
the gorgeous feathered hair. I love it. Oh, the uh, the 1980s Walkman. Uh, all the fucking marvelous soundtrack. Just the Chef's Kiss soundtrack. You got the fucking breakup song by the Greg Ken band in your horror movie. Then that shit is going to be fucking fire. Um, and then of course the great fucking dance scene with one thing leads to another by the fix while she's on the fucking Walkman fucking knocks the vase over and shit like just i mean fucking fantastic like they really captured the vibe of like the 80s pizzeria roller skates like every fucking frame of it to me really just is that attention to detail yeah if you uh like had told me like if i didn't know going into it that this movie was from 2009 and you had been like yeah it's from like 1989 i would have been like oh okay yeah even like the way they shot it uh, cinematography also used the techniques of that time so that's another little touch that people might not think um he has the camera zoom in on the characters a lot rather than using a dolly which is what would now be more common and that was often used in a lot of 70s horror and, and on into the 80s as well um, the so the opening credits were like a dead giveaway of that style right out of the gate. They kind of let you know what we're working with here. Uh, the yellow font with the freeze frames and uh, the closing credits being played over a still image. Like all of that was great. Like late 70s, early 80s horror staples. Yeah, absolutely. You almost get, you know, it's just like the cut above the TV movie vibe. And, you know, we've reviewed enough movies to know that. Even the great directors would jump back and forth between horror and then go make a TV movie for some extra money. So, totally nailed it. And then, of course, we we you know filleted how great the soundtrack, like the the musical soundtrack, was in terms of the '80s songs and shit that they picked. But the musical score deserves a little bit of uh, love as well. It was done by a dude named Jeff Grace who also did the score for a movie called "I Can See You." That was actually a double feature. Uh, soundtrack release they, they just put them on one album and released them together for these but I think you know the synth wave music really the, the especially like at the very beginning that fucking jam is um, it's it's really awesome and like something that I was actually trying to look up earlier <laughs> just, just to have to put it on my playlist but uh, also like it, it goes from that like synth wave kind of 80s upbeat like you know you kind of get to know the characters and uh you know things are not great but they're not fucking like horrible yet um and then but as things get more horrible like the soundtrack is just the perfect level of of extra creepy but not like over the top i i don't know i loved it let's talk about the cast so our lead actress here is Jocelyn Donhue as Samantha Hughes thought she's fucking excellent in this um she's been around doing some stuff she was in the western horror film the burrowers in 2008 uh, after getting the lead in this film she was the lead in the movie the last godfather which was a korean filmmaker made movie uh, she also was in the independent film live at the fox's den uh, she appeared in the movie the end of love in 2012 and worked with director terrence malick on night of cups she was in the horror anthology film Holidays in 2016. And uh, she's also known for her work in numerous commercials. She was in numerous national ad campaigns, including Levi's, 
Zune, Vitamin Water, Apple, Subway, and Mercedes-Benz. Uh, she played a young version of Barbara Hershey's character in Insidious Chapter 2. And in 2015, she stars in the crime thriller The Frontier. And then she appeared in the 2019 film Doctor Sleep. Probably her biggest role to date in terms of people seeing her in a film. Uh, yeah, big fan of Jocelyn Donahue here. I think she kills it in, in every conceivable aspect. Yeah, hearing that she was in ads for Levi's, I feel like this entire movie is basically a, a jeans ad. So that makes sense. Yeah, she's really great in the movie. She's one of those people. I mean, she's obviously been around and working, but she's one of those people that like you would have thought would have like been like a bigger deal by now. I mean, still, you know, could happen for sure. But, you know, like after watching this movie, you know, you would expect to see her in like, you know, a bunch of big roles, but hasn't happened yet. But she's really awesome in this. Yeah, I think it was a smart decision picking someone uh, with what, what they would call in the modeling industry that she came from a, a commercial or catalog look um, gives her a real like everyday approachable girl next door kind of vibe um, and also lends into the vibe of it being in the 80s where like people look like people looked like still the same but you know what I you, do you guys know what I mean when I say like people looked different? And I think like that kind of translates more having someone who does like major retail campaigns. They're going to have that like more average American face, which we saw more of in movies in the 80s. Yeah, there's an instant familiarity there, even though you're not maybe necessarily familiar yeah, so we have, you know, a great final girl. We have our great leading lady. Then we have a, a great heel. And Tom Noonan as Mr. Ullman. Uh, as Muji coined earlier, an all-time great creep. Um, or an all-time creep, however you want to describe it. Great American actor, director, and screenwriter. Been around for years. Best known for his role in the movie Manhunter in 1986 as Francis Dollarhide. Who's also Frankenstein's monster in the Monster Squad from 1987. Kane in RoboCop 2, the villain there from 1990. The Ripper in The Last Action Hero from 1993. Sammy Barnathan uh, in, uh, I don't know how to fucking pronounce that. Cynic Doke, New York. Uh, Re uh, Reverend Nathaniel in Hell on Wheels. And the Pallid Man in 12 Monkeys. As well as the voice of everybody but two main characters in Anomalisa from 2015. Also made numerous TV appearances including The X-Files, the much praised 1996 episode Paper Hearts written specifically for him. Law and Order Criminal Intent. Law and Order SVU. Tales from the Dark Side. CSI. Uh, Damages. The Blacklist. And a ton more shit. So Tom Noonan, just one of them great villainous character actors, always uh, a sinister bastard in pretty much everything he's in. And he's definitely that here. He gives you creepy vibes from the second he goes on screen. And, um, you know, it's one of those where it's like, oh, but he, he plays it with just enough sympathy. Is it like, is this just a sad old man or is this somebody trying to fucking sacrifice me to the devil and come to find out it's the latter yeah tom noonan rules um specifically in this movie 
um, he does do a really good job of like he plays the he plays his character in a way that makes him like almost more frightening than somebody that's like trying to, you know, be like, you know, devilish or, you know, intimidating or something is like he's just like seems very confused by the fact that like, you know, Jocelyn Donahue's character just isn't down to, you know, be sacrificed. <laughs> basically and even in the like beginning in his first scene where he's like well first scene in person on the phone where he's in the house and he's like giving the talk he's like oh yeah you know i've been busy with the the eclipse coming up so soon you know we just got a lot going on here like it's just like normal everyday stuff for him but i mean tom noonan's just awesome i feel like being our age you've just kind of grown up with him like kind of creeping you out like all along the way because for me you know, as a kid, like a last action hero, not really an awesome movie, but was an awesome movie when I was 10. So like immediately, like he's scary in there. And then by the time I'm 13, I'm watching the X-Files as it comes on TV. He is in one of the all-time classic episodes of that. And then, you know, when I went back and watched a bunch of old stuff, specifically Manhunter, creepy there too. So yes, he's uh, he's somewhere, somewhere in the creep, the all-time creep. Uh, Hall of Fame. He's definitely a first ballot uh, Hall of Famer when it comes to creeps. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed him in this movie. Uh, I actually wish he'd had more screen time, but I like how he's got this kind of reserved gentleness about him, even though he's, you know, he he apparently isn't the leader of the satanic cult, but, you know, maybe he's number two or number three. I don't know, but uh, I particularly enjoyed the scene where he's giving her the money and, you know, she asked for 400 and I could swear, you know, he's kind of uh, conveying some sort of pain, like that last hundred bucks is really hitting him where it hurts. And he's maybe wondering if he gets it back. But, yeah, uh, he's always enjoyable, like you guys said. We've seen him on millions of TV shows, and he's always great at what he does. He's probably been sacrificing a long time. He's probably like, man, fucking 400, this inflation, this bullshit. It's like you used to build a fucking get a virgin for 50 bucks. She already said she had rent to pay, man. Reaganomics was hitting him hard. <laughs> He's got to wonder if there's going to be blood on those hundreds by the end of the night, you know. Am I going to be able to reuse these? <laughs> uh, and then uh, the probably the most famous person, well, you know, definitely, I'd say at this point, the most famous person in the movie, Greta Gerwig as Megan. Uh, she's an actress, screenwriter, and director known for acting and making a lot of dialogue-driven independent films. Uh, she garnered attention after working on several movies in the mumblecore genre. Um, between Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joe Bob has a hilarious rant about mumblecore if you watch the Joe what? Bob Briggs episode. The, on. Give me an example of a mumblecore movie. What the fuck does that mean? Muji, you would know better than I. Let me tell you something, Annie. Mumblecore is essentially one step down from like a what a lot of like not the good ones, but what a lot of the bad like elevated horror movies are these days, where it's just essentially mumblecore just means it's more about people talking than it is about like anything else. It's usually like just young people sitting around like talking about their lives sucking or whatever it is. And not a lot happens like they're, uh, you know, like Lena Dunham, she got famous like she was an early mumblecore 
um, like Joe Swanberg, like he's one of those guys. And some of these people made good stuff like later, but it's essentially like it became like this like really in thing on the cheap indies, but it's just basically people sitting around talking. And of course it invaded horror because they figured out like nobody really gives a shit about a lot of these movies because we're just sitting in a cafe, like talking about, you know, people not liking us, but if there's blood in it, then we can get money for it. Okay. Sounds shitty. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, she she came to prominence in that genre when it was kind of the it thing. Uh, she co-wrote and co-directed Hannah Takes the Stairs and Nights and Weekends from 2007-2008, but now most well-known for her two solo directorial ventures, the coming-of-age films Lady Bird from 2017 and Little Women from 2019, both of which are nominations for the Academy Award for Best Picture. And for the former, she received Academy Award nominations for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay. And for the latter, she was not nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and was included in the annual Time 100 list of most influential people in the world in 2018. And if you like to see someone like that get their brains blown the fuck out, then this is the movie for you. Because that's one of the most uncomfortable kills in horror in quite some time. Um, and it's, you know, it's even done with a gun, which is not typically a slasher movie trope, but it happens occasionally. It's kind of maniac-esque in a way. Uh, the way A.J. Bowen just, you know, he lights her cigarette and he's all nice. And then just out of fucking nowhere, the second she says she's not the babysitter, Splat! Yeah, that scene rules, and that's really where, like, you know you're in for, like, a really fucking good movie when that happens. <laughs> like, the beginning, it's like you get the feelings, you're like, you know, the vibe is there, like, everything looks awesome. You're like, yeah, this looks like a late 70s, early 80s movie. I like it. Like, who's this actress? Like, she's got charisma. Oh, there's Tom Noon, it's creepy, and you're just kind of going along, like, this is going to be pretty fucking, whoa! And then she fucking Greta Gerwig gets her head blown off, and you're like, oh shit, like, I'm fucking, I was right, like, this is gonna rule. Yeah, you definitely start the the downhill climb, or the downhill slide, rather, there in the movie, where it's like, okay, the tension has just ratcheted to a whole new level. Um, then we had Mary Warrenoff as Mrs. Ullman. You can go see her episode on The Devil's Rejects for more about her career uh, back on the archives. for just $1 a month at patreon.com slash scare. To access all 16 seasons. Actually, it's really 17, isn't it? Because there was a season zero. The ABCs of horror. So, I say 16 seasons. It's really 17 seasons now. In our season finale tonight. Only a dollar a month unlocks it all for you. Lots of ways to kill time in the car. On those long wrestling road trips. And uh, other adventures when you're going to work and killing time during the day. Lots of time you can be listening to classics, seeking human victims about all your favorite horror movies and stars. But uh, Mrs. Oldman was pretty creepy. Uh, you know, she had to deal with the, she was, you know, it was her mother, I guess, um, that they were, she was allegedly watching, but, you know, she was just creepy from the second she goes on screen. There wasn't really anything kind of redeeming or like, pitiful about her like tom newman noonan's character that could give you any sort of false like security 
Yeah, she's definitely top cast, but there's a reason. She's really good at playing those creepy, domineering, bitchy women. So, you know, this was no exception, and she does a fantastic job. And then we had A.J. Bowen as Victor Ullman, the son. Uh, there's another guy you can go back to the archives to learn more about, specifically our Hatchet episode. Uh, but A.J. Bowen said a ton. He's pretty much like one of the horror guys of the 2000s and 2010s. I've uh, been in like most of the great indie horror films of that era, doing something, sometimes a big part, sometimes a small part. That guy's always fucking working. Learn more about all of that stuff in our Hatchet episode in the archive. Seeking human victims, that's patreon.com slash OG scare. And he was a real creep. And he had to eat, the motherfucker took a bite out of the goddamn pizza before he even, like, like how are you supposed to sell this act? <laughs> and then we had uh, D. Wallace in a nice cameo. There's the landlady there at the beginning, the legendary horror icon, D. Wallace. You can go back and see our episodes on Cujo and the Hills Have Eyes to learn more about the great D. Wallace's career. Of course, forever known as E.T.'s mom to a generation. And an awesome little cameo to really kind of get things kicked off right here in this movie. Yeah, when I first watched this you know, a few years ago, it kind of, you know, gave me some sort of cognitive dissonance because D. Wallace was older, but the movie looked like it was from the 80s. So it took me a minute to uh, catch up to what was going on. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and then, of course, rounding out the cast, we had a Daniel Noe as mother... And then additionally, we had uh, Lena Dunham with a cameo voicing a 911 operator. And then Ty West also had a cameo of his own as a teacher. And that'll do it for the cast. But the shooting dates and locations for the House of the Devil. Where was the House of the Devil? Where is the House of the Devil? It was shot March 2008 over a period of 18 days. It's located in Lakeville, Connecticut. And then they filmed at various other locations around that area. The pizzeria was in Winstead, Connecticut. The New Jersey or the Central Connecticut State University was in Britain, Connecticut. Uh... They also filmed in Salisbury, Connecticut, which is where Samantha's apartment was. And in Torrington, Connecticut as well. So, Connecticut. Not really a uh, known place for shooting great motion pictures, but I guess it had to do here. With that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. You will never guess what film they were watching on the television. What was it, Dan? Why, the 1968 classic, George A. Romero's O Night of the Living Dead. And of Wow, course, why was that? We all know why that is. But if it is your first episode, of course, that is famous public domain horror film due to a snafu with the, the copyright at the time it was released. So that's why you see Night of the Living Dead in every fucking movie. 
Also, why you saw Not the Living Dead being released by every fucking like low budget VHS and DVD place back in the day. <laughs> Go to Walmart, you're like, there's Not the Living Dead three times. Same fucking movie. Apparently, the house of the devil is infested with ladybugs, and you can actually see some of them uh, unwanted and flying into shots in this film. Character. <laughs> Most of the crew that they used was locally sourced from Connecticut to help keep the costs down. And including cost-cutting measures such as uh, Jocelyn Donahue did not hire a choreographer. She did her own choreography to that dance scene. And when Samantha orders the pizza, the pizza guy asks if she wants extra anchovies. That's a very subtle nod to the Patrick Dempsey comedy Loverboy from 1989. The uh, extra anchovies reference meant that the delivery boy would be delivering a lot more pizzas. I remember as a kid having like a real fear of getting anchovies on a pizza. Because I didn't know a place that you could order them from, but I think it was because of the Ninja Turtles. It's because you knew that if you ordered extra anchovies, you'd actually be getting the sausage. <laughs> I was a child. God damn it. The lover boy joke, Muji. Pay attention. Do you think that Loverboy is the whole reason that the pizza guy porn genre exists? Like, does the website Big Sausage Pizza owe royalties to Loverboy? <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> mentioned Dee Wallace earlier. She only put in one day of work on the film for her brief little cameo. Apparently, the Coke cups in the pizza place were bought off eBay to remain period accurate. What I say about those attentions, those little details that he paid attention to. The name of the couple, the Ullmans, is an homage to The Shining. Uh, that's where Jack Nicholson's character is hired by a Mr. Ullman, the hotel manager who relates the unsavory background about the hotel to him. The film should be set somewhere in 1983 based on the release of One Thing Leads to Another by The Fix. Uh, apparently in the earlier draft of the script, Mrs. Ullman did not wear a wig. This is a rare movie where there's an actual phone number on the wall. The, when you see her dial 911, there is a phone number list that is not the infamous 555 movie phone number. And then Greta Gerwig's death was shot on her last day of filming. So she got her, got her brains blown out and pieced the fuck out. And apparently during the early diner scene while eating pizza, Greta Gerwig's character appears to make the sign of Baphomet, foreshadowing Donahue's encounter with the Satanists. But that might be unintentional, they say. So, with that final odd and interesting fact, we will close the door to the auditorium. But now, let's see how it did. Let's look at the numbers! Numbers of the Beast! Numbers of the Beast uh, movie was released uh, October 25th, 2009 was the, uh, the debut. It was released widely in the U.S. October 30th of 2009. Just in time for Halloween 2009. Man, I think I dressed up as Captain Kirk that year. Uh, 
budget was nine hundred thousand. Box office was a little over a hundred, so didn't do great in the old theater. But I mean, it wasn't like widely released. We definitely could not see it where we were from, but they were still selling DVDs then. So you got to hope that they sold enough to where they at least you know broke even. I can confirm you were Captain Kirk for Halloween that year. That was one of my all-time greatest. Yeah, I, yeah, you got to think they made money with this over time. It was enough to not get Ty West ran out the business, so I assume he didn't shit the bed too bad with it because, uh, you know, he made a lot of stuff after this, and it was considered, you know, a pretty successful movie in terms of, like, buzz. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, interesting, interesting. What was the critical acclaim? Let's see here. It's got a 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, so pretty beloved. Uh, it says the underlying themes are familiar, but it sheds the loud and gory cliches of contemporary horror to deliver a tense and slow-building throwback to the fl- fright flicks of decades past. Ebert gave it three out of four stars, complimenting its subtlety and tension. An introduction for audience members to Hitchcockian suspense, he said. Wow. Uh, Kevin Summerfield of Slasher Studios gave it four out of four stars. Uh, Oliver Smith of Seven Films compared it to staples of the genre, said it's as great as The Omen or Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs praised the film, said it's a superb slow burn, extremely well-crafted film. Salon magazine or website indicated that they liked the movie and it was clever and somewhat a novelty, though it was clearly made with love. Uh, Some critics were less kind. New York Post said it was creepy, but took too long to arrive at the climax. Hollywood Reporter said it was derivative and flatteringly imitative, uh, but it was banal. Film won a few awards shortly after its release, but was largely absent from most major competitions and film festivals due to its limited theatrical release and low budget. But it did win the Birmingham Sidewalk Moving Picture Festival Award for Best Feature in 2009 and 2009 Scream Fest. It won trophies for Best Actress and Best Score. So, any sort of uh, influence on pop culture, like we're a little over a decade out, I think it was ahead of its time, kind of predicting the return of Satanic Panic a little bit. Um, But in terms of, like, influencing any kind of media, not really, other than, of course, it kind of launching Ty West in the horror world as a guy to watch, and now he's kind of the guy. So uh, that's kind of interesting. But if you want to own it, you certainly can. And Dreamboat Annie is going to tell you how. So it was promotionally released on VHS first in a clamshell box. You know, all of the 80s. It was the last major motion picture released on VHS. uh, Or the last major motion picture released on that on VHS was a history of violence. So this would have been four years after that. So that's pretty fun. Um, The DVD was released alongside the Blu-ray. And that was in February of 2010. Um, It has yet to have any type of re-release. And it is currently streaming on Peacock. 
All right, now you know where you can own this. So, with that said, there's nothing left to do for season 16, but give our final motherfucking thoughts. So, House of the Devil. Um, I've made no secret throughout this episode that I was a fan of this movie and nothing about this viewing changed that. I think it is like the best movie of horror probably from uh, the year 2009 for sure and probably for several years prior to that I think maybe I don't know maybe like Devil's Rejects prior to that might have been the best film in horror prior to that and then after that it was House of the Devil like in my opinion anyway just just one guy's thoughts but it's dripping with atmosphere and everything I love about a horror movie. Um, and I like that it was a slow burn. Like, you know, and it's not for everybody, but sometimes they don't all need to be fucking Terrifier 2. Love Terrifier 2. We'll probably watch that more often than a movie like this. But this is a example where that's done perfectly with such a rich payoff. I just, I fucking love this movie and absolutely deserved to be the movie that kind of launched Ty West. Uh, yeah, I I thought this movie was was a really fun watch. Um, it, it's not, it sounds really fucking cliche and cringy, but like, it doesn't feel like every other movie that came out. Like, but it doesn't. It, it stands out. Um, because of the decisions that were made in making it and in directing it. And um, like has been pointed out multiple times, all of the attention to detail and uh, getting every little thing right about it, it really kind of transports you to a different period of time, which is something that, you know, all period pieces are obviously striving to do. And um, just last week we were talking about the movie being set in a period and it being a period piece but it very much feeling like it was a period piece from the 80s depicting the 50s this felt like an 80s movie to the point that you forget that it was from 2009 um that's pretty pretty commendable um it was Again, not one that like really was like overtly cartoonishly satanic, which is always more fun when they play with the with a more realistic version and with uh, Mr. Ullman being not benevolent, but being just nice enough to to where you're unsure of his full intentions. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was a fun movie to watch. Um, and I, I would definitely watch it again. Yeah, I agree with those sentiments. Um, I like that it looks like an 80s movie, feels like an 80s movie, but they're not beating you over the head, you know, like a lot of things do. You know, she's not covered head to toe in neon and things like that and wearing stupid sunglasses all the time. But yeah, I think the movie was just very well made. Like Dan said, it's a slow burn, but that's enjoyable now and again when done right. And they definitely did this one right. You know, you got a cute leading lady in tight blue jeans the whole time. You have great supporting cast. Um, I feel like I've been kind of quiet this episode, but I really 
don't have any critiques of this film. I think it's just very well done. It's very enjoyable to watch, and I think it's good for multiple watches. I really like this movie. Um, I really loved it when it came out. I still do like it. I mean, I still think it's a really great movie. I think that one thing that is important to point out is that when this movie came out in 2009, like it was way different than everything else that was coming out. I mean, in the last 10 years or so, you know, you can't like turn on your, you know, TV or your computer, however you watch your movies without seeing some sort of like movie that's, you know, set in like the late seventies or early eighties. Like they're just still, you know, to now, I think finally it's slowing down a little bit to where like now it's in to, you know, make things set in the nineties, but this whole period was kind of done to death the last 10 years, but 2009, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, horror, there's always good horror every year. Like you can look back and find some stuff that you like, but the late nineties were, or the late two uh, thousands before 2010 was, you know, not like the greatest little period for horror movies. Like I said, there was good stuff, but it was mostly dominated by like, Saw sequels and remakes of, you know, 80s movies. That's where, you know, we got like, I mean, all the major franchises from the 80s got remade in the late, you know, pot. So this was like a really refreshing, like, you know, kind of simplistic, like old school horror movie when it came out. And that, like I said, it made it way different than everything else that was coming out at the time. And it's really well made. Um, like I said, I mean, it's it looks great. The music is great. There's just a really good atmosphere the whole movie. Um, and then, you know, every once in a while, it has the big pops. Like when Greta Gerwig gets shot um, during the actual, you know, satanic ritual at the end. Like there, you know, there are some like really good shock value scenes in between too. So yeah, man, still really like it. Um, still um, one of my favorite movies from that year. And um yeah, it was, like I said, a great discovery, and it really came along, like, at a time where people were really craving something like this back in the day. Yeah, excellent revisitation of the House of the Devil. Always good to go back to that one. What a fun season this one was. We really, uh, really went over some excellent movies maybe one of the best lineups we've ever done really in my opinion uh now coming up we'll have a season 17 in the spring maybe early summer probably spring still but we do have a plethora of bonus episodes to get to so uh, our wonderful executive producer tier patrons have been patient and waiting their turn and now that the season's over there will be a number of bonus episodes brought to you by our executive producers casey and james and uh gonna be a russian roulette for y'all because i don't know what they're gonna be but uh probably won't get one next week the week after that we will start with those bonus episodes and start churning them out and uh, you never know what sort of fun you're going to get. We are trying to keep them all in the horror genre this time. I know some of the bonus episode uh, executive producers past have really gotten a kick out of uh, having us do some comedic and other like non-horror films. But 
these these executive producers seem to want to keep it to the horror genre so we'll we'll be back with more of that but thank you so much for your support as always uh please take this next week off to go revisit the archive uh you can also go to our youtube page and see all of the different wrestling promos that one good scare is pumping out uh, we're not really putting podcast content there anywhere anymore because we want to drive you to either the patreon or to subscribe on the feed but uh you can always go there for the video stuff that we're up to as well follow my wrestling adventures uh over on the twitter at rev dan wilson or tank at tank underscore est 1996 we got a busy year the coven of the goat has been born and we're taking over professional wrestling uh one promotion at a time so come be sure to come support us and see us out there on the road real soon and of course you can follow the official seeking human victims twitter at og scare over on the twitter machine and on facebook as well if you want to keep up with what we got going on thank you so much for joining us And we will see you next time on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life at Seeking Human Victims. Seeking Human Victims. written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredford, as well as K.T. Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective editors.